0: Hello, welcome
1: to the Red Box podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. One of the big things we do on the show every day is our quiz, can you get to number 10? 10 questions, each loosely connected to 10 cabinet jobs. The more questions you get right, the better the cabinet job you get. However, the past few days uh, haven't gone terribly well. All the men have got most of the questions wrong. So, if you think you can do better, and particularly if you're a woman who wants to get a place in our Cabinet, get in touch with me. Email me matt.chorley at times.radio and we'll get you on the radio very soon. Uh, Now then, Boris Johnson's round off the Conservative Party's slightly weird virtual party conference with a big conference speech. But we thought we would ask in today's podcast, what is Johnsonism? May I have your attention please? May I have your attention please? Will the real Boris Johnson please stand up? I repeat, will the real Boris Johnson please stand up? Well, as the Prime Minister addresses the virtual party faithful, it's even less clear who he is. What is Johnsonism? Maybe we'll find out in his speech at 11.30 this morning. Is he, a liberal, is he a London liberal or a parochial populist? A freedom fighter or a nanny state weight watcher? What does he want offshore? Wind farms or ferries full of migrants? Well, few people know the Prime Minister best than my first guest. Rachel Wolfe got her first job in politics, working as a researcher for Boris Johnson 14 years ago when he was a shadow education minister. She later advised him when he was London mayor, before becoming an advisor to David Cameron and Michael Gove. She went on to co-found the public first public policy research agency. But also, a year ago, she was drafted in to write the manifesto, which would help deliver an 80-seat majority for Boris Johnson. And she joins me now. Good morning, Rachel. Good morning. So I suppose the first question is, which is the Boris Johnson you know?
2: So I think the announcement this morning was pure, unalloyed Boris Johnson in that it was about giving the sense that the future not only can but will be better than the past um, and that we are all sort of marching together towards it. He's seeking things that unite people. Clean energy is one of the sort of few areas where pretty much everyone, regardless of their place uh, or background, kind of believes this is an important um, Priority. And that's what he's always tried to do, right? He's always tried to find things which both, uh, unite different parts of the country and different people, um, and try and kind of march us inexorably and with this sense of goodwill and optimism towards the future. Um, and it's quite striking, I think, that the two domestic speeches he's chosen to do in the last couple of weeks, and they're the first domestic announcements in a really long time. Were on this clean energy and two on skills, which again is something that everybody gets behind. Uh,
1: just on the subject of the, the clean energy, he's going to make this. He's going to renew this joke about oh, people used to say that wind farms can't take the skin off a of rice pudding. It was him who used to say that. It was it used to be yeah. him who used to take the Mickey out of uh, wind. Farms. Let's take a listen to him making this joke last year.
3: So I remember it was only a few years ago when people were saying that solar power would never work in cloudy old UK. Uh, and they said that wind turbines would never pull the skin off a rice pudding. Remember that? So that's,
1: it's such a good joke, he's going to recycle it again uh, today. <laughs> uh, but of course it was him. We're
2: into recycling now.
1: Exactly. He's, he's very green. But it, doesn't, it sort of fuels the suspicion with him that sometimes he... Should we take him seriously now or should we have taken him seriously before when he used to, when he used to mock green energy projects?
2: Well, he's going to know that people will be pointing this out. And I think what he's probably gently saying is that he uh, has changed his mind and he has bought, as a lot of us have, I think the, across the country, um, concern about the environment, belief in the importance of renewable energy, belief that this is a problem that can and must be solved, has changed dramatically over the last 10 years. If you measure popular opinion 10 years ago, they would not have shared the same concern for the environment as as they feel today. And so he's pointing out that he's changed his mind. Um, And he is a politician that changes his mind. Uh, While I think understanding deeply, I've always been struck by this, that um, you have to do things that are possible within human nature and allow people to live their lives.
1: I suppose one person's uh, change of mind is someone else's you know he doesn't really believe in anything what what do you think is is johnsonism what What is it that he believes in which hasn't changed because you know at one time he was a big proponent of staying in the single market and then he, you know he wasn't he used to criticize wind farms and now he wants more of them so what what is it that, that he is his sort of constant that we can sort of point to and that's his sort of compass as a leader?
2: So I think the common threads that I felt were very obvious when I was working on the manifesto, and I think are still very obvious in these uh, speeches that he's been given, are number one, um, you can, as a country, um, invest, build, he thinks infrastructure and technology are central to our future, in a way that transforms that future. So you can do things to make the future better. number two you have to do it in a way that understands that people want a fundamentally fair society they want to get on with each other but they want a fundamentally fair society where people who play by the rules are um are rewarded for it um and three which um has obviously been quite absent because of the need to deal with the pandemic um, but again, I think you're starting, you're going to start to see more and more of, I would guess, in the next six months, is that we need to um, rebalance through that infrastructure and sense of fairness. That there are some uh, people, there are some places in the country where, to h- use his words, opportunity has been unfairly distributed, even though talent is equally distributed. And that, that has always been cool. When I first worked for him, uh, he was doing higher education universities policy. And that belief that you need to unleash people's talent and allow them to express it has always been central, I think.
1: That's really interesting. Well, let, tell you what, let's bring in uh, the Prime Minister biographer, Andrew Jimson. Morning, Andrew.
4: Good morning. Nice to hear you. Thanks for having me. No,
1: Nice to have you on uh, Times Radio. Um, what for you is Johnsonism, having studied his, his life and, and chronicled it in a in a biography?
4: Well, I'm sorry, Matt, it's a completely ridiculous question. You're trying to understand the Prime Minister in ideological terms. He doesn't have an ideology. As Rachel said, he has various instincts. He's a Tory pragmatist, and he's a direct descendant of Benjamin Disraeli, the most inspiring Tory Prime Minister of the 19th century, who believed in the greatness of Britain and the welfare of the people. And these are not ideological points. There's patriotism plus um, making sure that everyone um, can share in... In in the good things of life, Um, which, of course, you can you can you can say that this is intellectually unsatisfying, but it's very (laughs) politically, it's very, very difficult to oppose because who doesn't want Britain to be great and who doesn't want the people, people's welfare to be secured.
1: So is the test then that is he up to the job of delivering on that? Because you're right. No one is going to disagree with we want better skills and greener technology and everyone getting on in life. Is he the sort of the administrator to deliver
4: it? But what he likes is, is, is stormy weather. So the very thing that most of us would think, gosh, how terrible, he's being accused of being incompetent, they've lost some of the tests. Uh, uh, the, the tyranny of the story, it, it, although the media is no longer concentrated in Fleet Street, the story is still, there's still this tyranny. And uh, At the moment, the story is Johnson's incompetence. Um, well, He'll be damn, damn determined to prove that he's competent, uh, and he'll have to. He hasn't yet got all the people he needs. I mean, he'll need people like Lord Beaverbrook who can actually get the Spitfires built, that sort of stuff. Um, he hasn't done it, but he's he's very much in the market. So, um, if if you fancy a change from broadcasting, Matt, I'm sure there'd be a role for you in in making sure that those, <laughs> those Spitfires are running off. i sure. off the production line in... Southampton or wherever they I'm
1: not sure if there's a shortage of competence and I'm necessarily the right person for the job. <laughs> um, <laughs> Rachel, do you think he's up? I mean, we're, 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 what, over a year now into his premiership. If he hasn't got his ducks in a row in the middle of a of a national crisis like this, is he ever going to prove to us that he's a competent leader?
2: Well, I think this is probably why of making these announcements. Um, I mean, there are, there are two things that you need to do fundamentally, fundamentally if you have a hope of delivering. Uh, the first is, to Andrew's point, surround yourself with the right team. And Boris is, I think, always very keen to surround himself with the right team. He delegates in a good way. He seeks people from lots of different backgrounds and, and is terribly non-personal about who he chooses to work uh, for him and with him. And the second is to give yourself some runway. Um, We've only got four years until the next election. We have effectively lost a year for the right reasons uh, since the manifesto was published and since the election was won. And if you have a hope of saying to people in four years, yes, your life is better because you voted for us. Before the pandemic, you know they were very clear that they felt that the people in the red wall had lent their votes um, and, and needed to be proved right in lending those votes. Um, then you've got to start investing now. I think one of the most interesting tensions you're going to see over the next six months is not what is Johnsonianism, but how do you invest and make decisions about post-COVID when it is still so uncertain how the economy is going to function and when this is going to be over? But they're going to have to, or they'll have nothing to show in the next four years.
1: If you like what you're hearing, you can listen to the whole of my Times Radio show. Either listen back on the Times Radio app or you can listen live Monday to Thursday 10
5: till 1. We'll have more on the episode after this.
2: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: I mean, one of the things that he... And, you know, the, the real uh, streak that's come out of him during the, the sort of the latter part of the, of the pandemic, has is is, is, suddenly become a sort of real freedom
3: fighter. Let's take a listen. ...difference between uh, our country and many other countries around the world, and that is our country is a freedom-loving country, Mr Speaker. And if you look at the history of this country over the last 300 years, uh, virtually every advance in, from free speech to democracy uh, to, uh, have been, has, come from this, has come from this country. And it is very difficult to ask the British population uh, uniformly to obey, uh, to obey uh, guidelines in the way that it is necessary.
1: Andrew, I sort of take his point. He's banging on the dispatch box there to to emphasise uh, his point. But being a freedom-loving country doesn't keep people in jobs or put food on the table or, or help us get better when we're sick, does it?
4: No, it doesn't. And his parliamentary performances actually have been bad recently. He's not good as a leader at giving the feeling to the House of Commons that he's taking the House of Commons into his confidence, that he values having the argument there that he's even prepared to have votes there on what he's doing. And so his own MPs, uh, including sort of estimable people like Sir Graham Brady, the chairman of the 22 committee, um, they are very, very angry about this rule by decree. Um, and I think it, it, it does tend to make for bad government as well. I mean, of course, you've got to make decisions. You've got to you, you've got to be out in front, but you can't you can totally ignore the poor bloody infantry who have to follow you over the top. And that's, Rather, what he's been doing in the House of Commons, and I think that is bad, actually, and it cuts against his idea of national togetherness. If he won't bring um, even sort of Conservative MPs together with him, um, that—that's something he's got to—he he has actually got to change the way he, the way he deals with Parliament.
1: Does that ring true with you, Rachel? One of the things. I mean, I, I know him a tiny bit, but lots of people I know who know him better say, actually, you know, he's a bit of a loner. He's not great at reaching out and being sort of clubbable with Tory MPs. And that was true the first time he was an MP when you were working for him, never mind, uh, more recently. And actually, that's fine when you're riding high and you're king of the world. But you also need some people to back you up when, when you know, the the, the bad stuff hits the fan.
2: I mean, my impression is that in general, for obvious reasons, it's much harder to... Keep Parliament together, keep your MPs together in the midst of this, because they're not physically together. And that a huge amount of how you bind people and bind new MPs has been disrupted because um, of the pandemic. But I don't want to be too cynical. I, I also think that in the end, if he is seen to be delivering for the people who voted for him, and if he is seen to be someone who is going to lead the Conservative Party to another election victory because he can claim that delivery, they'll be fine um and so going back to what we were talking about earlier he's got to put down these markers over the next six months as well as covid that he has a delivery plan that makes sense for their constituents that that is the fundamental test always of support because um in the end the Conservative Party is still a party that likes to win elections.
1: <laughs> yeah, as ever. Um, and and ju- one of the things, obviously, that comes up time and time again when we do uh, opinion polls or, you know, we've run focus groups here on Times Radio is uh, Dominic Cummings, the most well-known uh, chief of staff in possibly political history. Um, uh, let's take a listen to uh, Boris Johnson uh, defending Dominic Cummings earlier this year.
3: I think when you look at the guidance, when you look at the particular childcare needs that uh, Mr Cummings faced at the time, it was reasonable of him uh, to self-isolate, as he did for 14 days or, or more, uh, with his family, uh, where he did. Uh, so there's this impression, uh, Rachel, that he's a sort of puppet
1: of Dominic Cummings. He's a prisoner in number 10. Uh, is that, does that chime with your experience?
2: No, I've heard this about various different prime ministers. It, uh, it was said of Theresa May as well, that she was... Yeah, in of course. In yeah, that's then. true. And, and, you, and, you know, in a different way, Tony Blair to Alastair Campbell. Like, in my experience, it's never true, right? It is always fundamentally the principal who's in charge and who is making decisions and is choosing the extent to which members of his team uh, do or don't have power over things. I think I would also say that there are quite a lot of people around Boris who, certainly I worked with him in the election, other people will know, who are also incredibly important and influential. Go
1: on then, um, go on, just between us, just between, us, us, I, just between, us, just between <laughs> you and I, who are the people who are, who are more influential?
2: Sorry, what did you say, Matt? I didn't hear you. Just between, just
1: between you and I, who, <laughs> who are those people who are more influential?
2: I, I don't want to kind of embarrass them or put them on the spot, but, you know, when I was working in the manifesto, um, you know, Munira Mirza, who's the head of the policy unit, who was far more important in the manifesto process than I was, Was absolutely central in understanding what people needed and wanted and how to translate that into credible policy. She's not the only one, but um, she's very important, I think.
1: Okay, well, I'll tell you what, let's, because obviously one of the the issues he's had is he's sort of um, trying to keep uh, on side the the, sort of the traditional Tory right wing um, who who really aren't happy. So let's bring in Kate Andrews, uh, economics correspondent from The Spectator. Morning, Kate. Good morning. Um, what is it that the uh, the Tory writer looking for? Because even your mag- your magazine, the Spectator, not you know Boris Johnson once edited it. Um, normally a cheerleader he for did. the Tory uh, uh, party, Tory governments, and even you seem to have slightly turned on him. What what, what is it you want from Boris Johnson?
6: Well, cheerleader is a bit of a stretch. I I think the spectator is looking for those classically liberal ideas to come out of the woodwork. I mean, look, I can't speak for the the magazine as a whole. I I can certainly say that I'm I'm looking for some realistic thinking uh, going into the next three months, next six months, and, and certainly the next five years. I think this idea that they're just going to be able to pick up the manifesto from where they had to drop it earlier in the year to deal with the pandemic And wrong with it, 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 it's very difficult to believe. A lot has changed. We still don't know the extent to which things have changed, but there are obviously going to be new priorities. And, I mean, the the one that comes to the the top of the list for, for me is obviously healthcare. You now have possibly up to 4 million people having their surgeries and their place on the wait list reassessed because of the huge backup once people had their surgeries canceled and their treatments and their diagnoses canceled during the COVID crisis. I mean, that to me should be at the very top of any list. And whilst the conservatives were investing more money in the National Health Service, they were never talking about Fundamental reform, they weren't talking about how we speed up these wait lists I mean the UK has some of the worst wait lists in Europe. Um, That should be at the top of the list now and so the idea that you're just going to pick up from where you left off at the beginning of the year seems fanciful Um, and I'm sure they'd like to be able to do that. I think we would all like to have not gone through these horrible past six months of pandemic but we are where we are. Uh,
1: The question that we posed at the beginning of this is who is the real Boris Johnson? Are you clear about what sort of leader he is?
6: Um, well, I think he's an optimistic one uh, i'm not <laughs> sh- I'm, I'm genuinely he he obviously is i mean we're getting talk of Operation Moonshot. he said on the mar program. This weekend, that he really did think that something would have fundamentally changed in this crisis uh, by the time that we get to spring next year. He's, he's very optimistic, and I sometimes worry too much so. I don't think we've properly leveled with the public uh, about what it really means to, to get everybody in this country vaccinated, what it would mean to have 10 million tests a day. I mean, these are pipeline dreams at the moment. I, I'm hopeful. I'm, I would like these things to happen, but I'm not nearly as optimistic. And I, I do worry that if, if you're too optimistic, you don't bring in some of those practical changes or that practical, practical policy that's needed to make our lives ever so slightly better uh, as, as we wait and hope for these big silver bullet game-changing things to happen.
1: Okay, yeah, I think you're right. He's very optimistic. Lots of um, Tory MPs are less uh, optimistic, as we said, some even suggesting he might not lead the party into the next election. So let's bring in Professor Tim Bale. Uh, Morning, Tim. You've been doing some research with um, Tory party members. Tell us what you found.
7: Yeah, I mean uh, this research hasn't been conducted you know uh, in the last few months it was conducted right at the end of the um 2019 just after the election and we asked people if Boris basically fell under a bus we didn't quite put it like that um who they'd like to see um replace him uh, and what you see there is a huge amount of kind of uncertainty there. Uh, I mean, over forty percent of them said they couldn't possibly decide, they couldn't choose, they didn't know. You know, because you know, they're such big fans of Boris. But actually, if you if you take out those, um, you get some surprising things. Like Michael Gove, although he stood and and didn't do that brilliantly in the in the contest, um, you know, he was probably the the kind of the lead man to to take over. Uh, around a quarter of them. Uh, who said they did You know, have a, a choice, would have gone for Michael Gove. Um, but even then, there's not that many of them uh, have, have put him in the lead. Uh, and some people you would expect maybe to have done rather better. For example, Jeremy Hunt, who had stood against Boris Johnson and, uh, and had lost, OK, two-thirds to one-third, only 3% of members actually named him. So I think he's out for the count, really, as far as he's concerned, which is a, a good indicator for people who feel like sort of throwing their hat in the ring in these uh, contests. But it's not always the, the wise thing to do. Had he stayed out of it uh, and, uh, you know, um, held his fire, he might have uh, actually been in a better position uh, this time around, if if Boris Johnson, you know, does ever go, and then there were some old favourites, so people like Jacob Rees-Mogg, he's still a favourite among about sort of 13, 14% of uh, Tory uh, members. Um, but but other people like, for example, Dominic Raab. I mean, only 10% of them said him. So the overall picture um, from that. Is, is really there is no clear um, you know front-runner, there is no uh, clear um, second choice, as it were, among Conservative members if Boris Johnson were to go. And what it also shows, I should say, is that, of course, these things really depend on who's in the news and who's not in the news, who's in a big job, who's not in a big job. Because, you know, we, we took this poll just before Christmas this year, just after the general election, five people out of 1,191 Conservative members named Rishi Sunak. <laughs>
1: well, he didn't exist by it then, did no, he? No, exactly.
7: He was a barely a twinkle in the eye. And that says something. I think, you know, as Boris himself in some ways showed, you know, you can... It, it's really about salience. It's about where you are when the contest is declared or when the contest looks like it's going to happen. That's what really, really matters because there, there is no obvious person to take over from Boris. And that's probably very good news for Boris. Boris. Boris Johnson, if, if, you know, he is really worried about his leadership. There is no one there, I think, who will necessarily step into his shoes.
1: Okay, but just before I let you all go then, a nice straightforward yes or no question. Will Boris Johnson lead the Tories into the next election? Rachel Wolfe? Yes, I
2: think he will.
1: Andrew Jimson?
4: Yeah, he'll be in for 10 years.
1: Very good. Kate Andrews?
2: Yes, I think he will.
1: And Tim Bale?
7: I'm going to say no just to be different.
1: That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box podcast. Uh, you can now listen back to my whole show on the Times radio app, where you can also now listen to all of the Times podcasts, including Red Box too. Make sure you subscribe and review at the Red Box podcast wherever you listen. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley,
0: it's goodbye.